Welcome to the show. I'm Tyler Orton, a reporter here at Business in Vancouver newspaper and VIV.com. A new forecast from Deloitte pegs BC's economy as the one that will be most resilient among the provinces during this current economic downturn. With us to discuss the outlook for the Canadian economy as we navigate through this pandemic, it is Craig Alexander, Chief Economist at Deloitte. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure. So I I think we'll tackle Canada as a whole in in just a moment, but I first want to start with British Columbia. Uh, You point out that this economy here in this province is well poised to endure what's going on right now. Tell me a little bit about why that is for BC. Well, we have to keep it all in perspective. You know, the BC economy is going to experience a very severe recession. It's going to be a recession far worse than we had in uh, 2008, 2009 that we dubbed at the time the the Great Recession. Um, But if we look at at the economic contraction and recovery in in BC, I I think that you're likely to find that the contraction is um, a bit less than the national average will be a bit stronger. And I I think a lot of this has to do with the success that BC has had uh, in in bending the curve on the number of new infections. Uh, BC's done better than than other provinces. Uh, I also think a lot of the the assessment relates to um, how the economic shutdown was actually implemented and then how the economy is being reopened. Um, when we look at, so a good example of, you know, contrasting how pro- different provinces uh, tackled things differently, um, when Quebec went into its economic lockdown, it deemed uh, residential construction to be, and this has, this has contributed to a deeper economic contraction in Quebec, whereas BC elected to say that, you know, given the type of work that was taking place, given the importance of residential construction, uh, likely reflecting issues around um, the housing market in, in BC and housing affordability, um, that, that residential construction was actually essential. And so it was kept open. And so those sort of policy decisions combined with, um, combined with a, a better record in terms of why I think BC is going to outperform. Well, it's interesting because uh, CMHC, they released their outlook yesterday with regards to uh, major metropolitan areas. Housing starts, they're, they're going to be soft for the remainder of the year. But how quick do you think it is that not just British Columbia, but maybe Canada will be able to rebound from this downturn compared to the Great Recession that you just... So um, one of the comments in the the latest uh, Bank of Canada forecast was that their assessment is the peak impact of the global pandemic was in April, and I actually agree with that assessment. and And that is that is built into our current forecast. When we when we when we look at the data, what we can see is that when the economic lockdown was imposed in 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 March, particularly the second half of March. Uh, you saw an enormous plunge in economic activity. And then in April, you had the, the full impact of, of the lockdown. But then as we entered into uh, the reopening of the economy, it has, has picked up. And, and let me be clear, you know, when I say that, you know, BC elected to keep residential real estate as an essential service, in other words, limiting the, the, the degree of the cycle, uh, that doesn't mean that is it you know that it's that it's strong right like it's a it's a function of of the fact that if you didn't shut it down it was producing albeit at a at a lower rate and understand that there are going to be deep legacies from from this from this crisis like we are going to find that in bc unemployment is going to be very high 
as we reopen the economy. There are going to be a lot of businesses uh, that are forced into closure here. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, which are the hardest hit sectors in, in the Canadian economy, uh, many of those hardest hit sectors are located in BC. So, you know, when you think about uh, uh, hospitality, food, accommodation, tourism, um, when you think about retail, um, these, these sectors all have a very significant presence in BC. So BC is not immune from what's taking place. It's, it's really just a function of, you know, if you manage the health risks better and you reopen your economy in a, in a, in a, in a more stable way, you know, this is going to help the recovery. And, and I think the tide effectively turned, um, in May, you know, we saw this in terms of the job numbers, um, heading into the labor force survey. Uh, at the start of June that gives you the, the May readings. And the market was actually looking for the overall Canadian economy to lose 500,000 jobs. In point of fact, 289,000 were created. And so what that could show us was that there was an inflection point. Another example is StatsCan reported very uh, negative retail trade numbers for the month of May, an enormous decline, like retail activity plunging around like a quarter of, of sales. But in May, the advanced survey results is plus 19%. So what we can see is that as you reopen, economic activity is, is in fact picking up. And so I think that's when the recovery started. Um, the one thing we're mindful about though, is that you know, when, I'm, when I'm talking, you know, when, I'm, when I'm presenting my base case forecast where I think the Canadian economy is gonna contract this year by 5.9%, I think that the BC is gonna contract a little less than 5%. Um, we need to be mindful that this is just the base case. And the number one risk to the outlook is if we have a second wave of infection. And right now it looks like, you know, Canada's managing those health risks and BC's managing those health risks. But I'm very worried about what I'm seeing in the United States. I'm, I'm very worried about the increase in the infection rates we're seeing in the U.S. So in this environment, I still encourage businesses and, and policymakers, governments, to run the scenarios. Like, don't base all your decisions on one particular base case outlook. The, the fact of the matter is there's so much uncertainty here. I think you want to think about a range of potential outcomes. Um, but, you know, the base case is, you know, is the economy contracting close close to 5%. How much of it is it a concern to you if the U.S. has to go back into some sort of lockdown, whether it's in different states or what have you, the impact that could eventually have on the Canadian economy as well if there's a bit more of a paralysis that's reemerging south of the border? Yeah, there, I mean, there's two different there's two different risks associated with the 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 outlook for the possibility of a second wave. There's first of all, there's you know, will Canada have a second wave? Will BC have a second wave post lockdown? Um, but the, a secondary, another dimension to this is, you know, what if we actually handle the health risks uh, well, but America can't? And 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 this is a real risk, and it does it does pose a significant threat to the economic recovery. You know, if you look at Canada, every province does more north-south trade than it does east-west. Canadian businesses are plugged into North American supply chains. Uh, BC is the gateway to Asia, but trade is still dominated with the United States. And so, if the U.S. economy, uh, you know, a good question is if America has a second wave, you know, that's bad. But is it bad enough to cause a lockdown? And then that that's another scenario. Because if America goes into a goes back into the sort of lockdown we had in, in March, April, 
well, then the Canadian economy is not, and the BC economy is not going to be immune to that because of our, our deep economic contractions. If America has more infections, but they don't go into the lockdown, the economic disruption will be more, but it won't be as bad as if, if America goes into a lockdown. Um, you know, one of the observations I sort of like to make is that we, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that America is having more difficulty dealing with the health risks. I mean, if you think about the motto for the United States, right, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The motto for Canada is peace, order, and good government. And you, you just, and then reflect on, you know, what it means in the current environment. And it shouldn't be surprising that America is going to have more challenges dealing with health risks. Well, the other thing that we saw, though, is there's a lot of panic buying at the very outset of this, but it, it turns out that maybe our supply chains were actually quite resilient as, you know, uh, essential travel was able to continue across borders. But do you think that there's any possibility that we'll have a rethink about our own domestic si supply chains, ensuring that there's not going to be as much potential disruption if another pandemic ever unfolds? Yeah, so... Um, a lot of different dimensions, right? So when the pandemic hit, um, there was hoard, hoarding being done by 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 Canadians. Um, it turns out that hoarding was unnecessary. Um, you know, there was enough toilet paper for 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 households. Um, you know, the the biggest challenge we had in the supply chains was when there was a completely abnormal surge in demand. It wasn't surprising that just-in-time inventory systems weren't capable of keeping pace with the stock. So when you saw the, you know, if you went to the grocery store and found out that you couldn't get that toilet paper that you were looking for, it, it was actually a function of excessive demand, not not actually a, a supply problem. Um, so you know, once once that excess demand moderated, you know, what we've seen is the Canadian supply chains at our essential retailers were were perfectly intact. But then there's another dimension to this, and that is uh, when we think about essential medical products, there is now an awareness by governments around the world that you might actually need to have certain essential products manufactured domestically um, for the good of your, your citizens. And, and so, you know, I think it came as a bit of a surprise to Canadians to find out that 100% of our penicillin is from China. Right. I mean, I, I think that people didn't quite appreciate the the sort of global supply chains um, in 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 medical. There's no question that I think one of the legacies from the current environment is that we are going to see governments uh, put in place initiatives to ensure that there's more uh, production of essential products domestically. Now, this this actually raises a, a question in my mind as an economist because it it sets off a slight you know it sets off a bit of a. a a warning light, which is how how are you defining essential, right? Like so, if if the answer is essential means we need to make sure that we have adequate medical supplies, I'm 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 perfectly good with that. But for 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 politicians making decisions around what is essential, it would be very easy for that to expand to a broader range of products or broader range of industries. And if that was to happen you could have an increase in protectionism, you could have you know, pressures on deglobalization, and that would be very harmful to, to the economic recovery. So we're gonna have to see how this, how this plays out. And I, and I am worried that you know, in an environment where countries have experienced such a dramatic decline in activity, there could be political incentives to try and do things to protect domestic jobs or favor domestic workers or favor domestic businesses that actually, 
seem intuitively right from a political point of view, but what we know from an economic point of view is they're deeply harmful. So if you think back to the 1930s and the Great Depression, the thing that actually caused a very bad recession in the 30s to turn into the Great Depression was because governments around the world embarked on protectionism. And that's why in 0809, when we had the financial crisis and the, the recession and during that period, the G20 nations all agreed that we were not going to go down the path of protectionism. And so, you know, we need to be mindful as we move forward that we, we don't want protectionism to take hold. And I think the government of Canada and the BC government is definitely aware of the risks and, you know, they want to support domestic businesses and, and people, but they also don't want to see the harm that protectionism causes. But when you see what's happening in the United States and you think about, you know, uh, the protectionism under President Trump pre-COVID, these are clear, you know, clearly the political risks have increased. Well, for on the topic of that intersection between policy and the economy, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is the potential for a transition into the green economy, that acceleration that you actually point out in your forecast. What kind of appetite is there right now, especially if you think about maybe some sort of constraints that there might be on investment, but also the realization that there is an opportunity to take bold steps to address climate change right now? Yeah, this this event is, you know, so the pandemic is is enormously disruptive. It's going to cause businesses to really fundamentally look at their business models. And a lot of clients that I'm talking to are are making are making changes to their their business models um, in in ways that are in a sense greater than than they probably would have been comfortable with pre pre-COVID. Like if you think about it, the shift towards digital has been enormous. The shift towards remote work has been enormous. The, 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 there's been a lot of different um, disruptions that are taking place in this environment. And, and along with those sort of transformations of the shift towards digital, remote work, flexible work, there is an opportunity to also take advantage of, this op- of the current environment to, to, to green the economy. Um, there's no question emissions have been reduced during this period where the economy has been you know, largely shut down. Um, the government of Canada, as part of its its stimulus packages, introduced measures like for the energy sector. There was the program to deal with orphan wells, and and at the end of the day, that was that was an environmental issue that was we were going to need to tackle as a nation. And the current crisis actually created the right you know created a and created the right in create the right opportunity to actually tackle that issue head on. And I think that there's more that governments can do. Like as we, one of the things we're going to see as we move forward, and I know right now there's a lot of questions around governments running massive deficits and, you know, how big is the debt to GDP ratio the deficit's going to be. But understand, I don't, I don't think we've seen all the fiscal announcements. I, I still think that as, we, as, as we're reopening and the economy's recovering, you're going to have governments that actually want to put in place uh, fiscal stimulus measures like they do during normal recessions to try and stimulate the economy when it's weak. And I think, for example, some of that, some of that stimulus is going to take the form of infrastructure. And when, when you're doing large-scale infrastructure projects, boy, there's an opportunity to prioritize those that will also help you achieve your climate goals. So the bottom line is, I think that as governments are making decisions around, um, you know, where where they they help to influence and strengthen the economy, there's there there can be a greening or pro environment dimension to them. And similarly, when businesses are thinking about transforming their their business models, there's there's a there's a real opportunity for business.
you know, ESG issues, environmental sustainability issues have not gone away. They were, they were here before, and they're still with us even in the midst of the, of the pandemic. Well, if we turn our attention to, say, just average workers at this point, and I know there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, about what's going to happen for many of these workers when the CERB, the CERB, ends at the conclusion of the summer, what what kind of precarious situation does that leave for much of the economy and, and many workers that are still very much reliant on paying their bills using that $2,000 a month? Yeah, so the, the CRB has been very effective at addressing the income shock that hit the Canadian economy and the fact that many workers uh, became unemployed. Like we know from the, the StatsCan data that we lost 3 million jobs in March and April, uh, but we also have a lot of workers that aren't counting as unemployed because um, they're they're not they're not they not not only don't have a job but they're not looking for work and if you don't look if you don't look for a job you don't actually count as unemployed uh, and that makes sense in normal times like if you're a, if you're a student in your mid twenties and you 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 don't have a job but you don't look for work you don't count as unemployed you're out of the labor market and everybody would say ah oh, that's perfectly fine but but in today's world, if you lost your job or you graduated and you don't have a job, but you aren't looking for work because of the health risks, because of the, the virus being in circulation, because of your perception that there aren't job opportunities out there, you know, those people, we probably should be counting as unemployed. Rate, it, it sort of shot up to around 13%. But if you, if you adjust for all the workers that, that, that have been pushed out of the labor market, the true unemployment rate's around 20%. And the CERB is basically providing income support for those, those individuals. Now, I've actually heard from a lot of businesses that they have some issues with the CERB if, if they hire low-paid workers, because what they're running into is some cases where workers are being told, okay, with the reopening, you can come back to work. And the worker is saying, you know what? Given the health risks, given that I'm getting two thousand dollars a month, I, I'm 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 fine where I am. I'm I'm quite happy. So I've actually had a, a, a significant number of businesses actually tell me that the CERB is acting as a deterrent to return to work for some workers, not all, but for a fraction of workers. So you know, the government extended the CERB by two months. It was going to run out in July, August. Now it's going to run out in in September, October. I think by that time, the government will probably announce a new, um, like they'll probably announce reforms to the employment insurance program. And they'll probably have in place the capacity to have the EI program cover workers that previously weren't being covered. And I think what will ultimately happen is work as we have the reopening. But when the CERB ends, I think those unemployed workers, those still unemployed workers will get transitioned onto some new income support program. But the key thing here is it's probably going to be less generous. And that will address this issue around the disincentive to work. Well, you know, Craig, a lot of great insights that you're able to share with us. And I just want to thank you so much for being able to jump on the show and uh, share that with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Craig Alexander. He is Chief Economist at Deloitte, and that's it for the show today, but we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can go to BIV.com for more stories and more interviews. For the time being, I'm Tyler Orton, and I want to thank everybody for joining us on the show.